Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief for recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Okay, welcome to our Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Jack McLean. I'm the host. And today we have Gary Baker, the bull, uh, the ex-Melbourne, Footscray and Sydney professional play. Played 147 games, won Melbourne's best and fairest in 1978. And the connection, he actually played footy with my dad. So it's a, uh, awesome to have Gary on. Uh, in 1983, he finished his career at Sydney Swans before uh, taking on some playing and coaching role with Morty Alec and Moravin for our Melbournians that are tuning in in the Vaffa uh, League and is currently owner of two successful restaurants that are uh, located in Tasmania. So really looking forward to chatting to Gary, not only about his playing days, but also his transition from professional footballer to um, running restaurants. Uh, so they'll be engaging for the business owners out there as well. Before we start the, this episode, a quick shout out. To all our members of Prepare Like a Pro, our mission here is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome, Gary. Jack, mate, uh, look, I've heard so much about you, mate, from your old man. I've, uh, I've actually I've reconnected with your old man because he moved to Tassie a few years ago, so uh, uh, tried to get into uh, what I'm into, mate, into restaurants, but he's too smart for that. And he only lasted a few years and got out. Yeah, you guys set the trend early, I reckon. Um, uh, Tasmania is the place to be. Or <laughs> Melburnians well, leaving and going to Tassie will be a popular thing, no doubt. Well, she's pretty good down here, mate. Like I, I always said, when I moved down here 35 years ago, all my mates used to say to me back in those times, uh, why would you go to Tassie? Why don't you go up the Gold Coast or up in the sunshine? They said, Tasmanian's 30 years behind everywhere else. And I used to say back then, Jack, thank God it is. And now we know why it's so great that it is because uh, other than the fact that it's always been the greatest uh, uh, city and state in, in Australia, yeah. it's all, also right now the safest as well. So, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was always a little bit before my time, Jack. Absolutely, mate. You picked it well. Great foresight. Uh, well, well, we'll get into the, the beginning of your career, mate. Where did you uh, play your junior footy? Yeah, well, I started as a, in the under-14s uh, where I grew up in a little country town called Leangatha, uh, about uh, you know, 100 or 160 kilometres uh, southeast of Melbourne, heading down towards Wilson's Promontory. Uh, yep. My old man, uh, he, he left uh, Melbourne in the, in the late 40s. He was Actually, the first ever cap- paid captain coach of Lane Gather in about 1949. He was a great country footballer and also a pretty handy city one as well. But he was only young. And obviously, back in those days, they needed a few dollars to raise his five kids that he had. So he went captain coaching on the hunt. So he went down there in those times and we grew up in Lane Gather. So I played under 14s for two years, then went into the under 16s. Couldn't get a game with the under 16s at Lane Gather. So I went out to the most famous club of all time, mate. Minion Dumbork United, where I went out there and played in their under-16 grand final. Awesome. What a, what a great story. That was a good change of, uh, of heart. What, what made you um, pick, pick that team? Did you, did you have a feeling they were going to win the grand final or was it uh, just the most practical choice? Well, uh, as, as an under-15-year-old under uh, uh, footballer, and I couldn't get a game with Lane Gather and Minion and Dumbork, uh, uh, previously were two different clubs. In, right. a, in, in in a league and in the mid sixties they merged as uh, as one club, Minion Dumbork United. And my father actually captain coached Dumbork back in the as one of the clubs that he coached back in the fifties. Um, so that club meant a little bit to me uh, as well. But plus it was only ten minutes down the road from Langatha. So I went out there and played one year in the under sixteens. We got beat in the grand final, and back in those days. Um, it was all country footy was all under 16s. There was no, no under 18s, under 19s. So when right. you were too old for under 16s, you either went into the senior side if you were good enough, or if you weren't quite good enough, you played in the reserves or the seconds, as they used to call them back in those days. Yeah. And, uh, and, and in that 12, 18 months that I went out to being in Dumbork United, I must have been on a, some sort of a spurty, growthy, 
I don't know. But that that stage of football, which a lot of kids today can't get a game, so they give up the game. Well, back then, if you wanted to play footy, you kept playing footy. So when I was too old for the under-16s, I actually went into the seniors the following year, played every game in the seniors in the first ruck as a 16-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, the following year, I got an invite from the great EJ Ted Whitten. I never forget, I got a letter in the mail from the Footscray Football Club. And mind you, you got to remember, this is 18 months after I couldn't get a game with Lane Gather under 16s. I get a letter from Ted Whitten inviting me down to train to the Footscray Footy Club. So that was pre season 1971. How good. Chief, as a 16 year old playing senior country footy, it must have been tough. You mentioned you had a growth sport, as a growth sport, which would have helped physically, but. From a mental side of point of view, were you uh, did you embrace the challenge or were you slightly nervous going up against men that year? Well, Jack, I can't remember actually being nervous. Uh, I know it's a long time ago, but I cannot remember being nervous. I just remember it was a progression going from the under-14s to not getting a game with the under-16s at Langatha to going to the under-16s at Manion Dunbar United to being number one ruckman. And I think as a 15-year-old, I actually embraced being the number one person in the club. So I think that took me to the following year where all I wanted to do was be the number one person. And and, and back in those days also, there were two or three ruckmen in the the one side at the one time. So it wasn't like today where one ruckman basically does all the work. Back then, you changed in the forward pocket or the back pocket. So I obviously had another ruckman with me. But I just wanted to embrace being the number one person in that side. And obviously, uh, I remember at the end of the year, I won the best first-year player. Yeah. Um, uh, I remember being on stage at the end of the oh, – that's when I was nervous because it was the first time I'd ever spoken in front of a crowd. Uh, and I was probably only 17 years of age. And, and to get up and I, I just remember how, how nervous I was talking in front of a crowd um, – that part of it, I was nervous, but as, as far as a footballer, I think that I was growing in confidence to, to, to thinking, well, maybe something bigger and better is coming, going to come out of this. Yeah, and bigger and better, is that when you started realising that professional football was, was a possibility or did that come once you got the letter? Well, once I got the letter, um, I, I, I remember I was pretty smug about it and I, I can remember getting the letter and telling my friends that, you know, I'm going to be playing with uh, Footscray under-19s next year because that was the natural thing that uh, as a 17-year-old I thought that uh, because back in the, in the 60s and 70s, the under-19s was a big competition. It was probably like what they call now the, you know, the, where the, all the kids get recruited from. Yeah, NAB, today's NAB, football, NAB League. The, yep, yep, the yep, NAB yep. League and all that sort of stuff. But the under-19s, a lot of great players come out of the under-19s. But I just, I just naturally thought, being a 17-year-old or maybe turning 18, that I would go down to Footscray Football Club and play in the under-19s. And when I got down there, there was no mention of under-19s. I just played uh, in a practice game with the reserves and, um, and basically played that first year in 1971 in the reserves and then I got my chance the first game in 1972 and I, I made the senior team uh, for the first game in 1972 and um, my career took off from there. But, you know, when I played that whole time, I, I probably wasn't thinking that I was an AFL player or a VFL player back in those times. It was just a progression. You, you went from under-14s to under-16s and it was a natural progression to go to the VFL as it was back in those days. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing story, mate, especially that, like you mentioned, dealing with that, uh, I guess, rejection early in your, in your career at the under-16s or under-16s where you were 14, 15, and then making that uh, pivotal change and uh, and it seems like from that um, position you just went from strength to strength and uh, and certainly excelled playing in the seniors. And, and was Ruck something that you 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 obviously were uh, had a talent for? Was it your favourite position on the field or did you like playing in the forward line as well? Well, um, Ruck was, and I say all the time, we, we got uh, Bont and Pally and Fife and, and, and all these great sentiment on ballers today that are six foot five that have never played in the Ruck. And my major height was six foot four. And all I ever did was play in the Ruck. And that's how it was back then. If you were six foot three, six foot four, my father was one of the great country Ruckmen of his time. He was six foot one. Um, it's funny how, how 
heights and shapes and everything have changed today. Like unless you're six foot ten, you don't play in the ruck today. And I know Glenn, your father, uh, was a great ruckman. He was six foot four himself. So uh, times have really changed. But what we used to do back in those times is you would uh, get used to playing in the forward line as well because you would change in the ruck. So you'd go in the ruck, there'd be two ruckmen, one would be in the forward pocket, one would be start on the ball. And, you know, you'd work out with your fellow ruckman, I'll do seven and a half minutes or if I'm having a, a blind patch, you know, I'll stay on longer. But you would change in the forward pocket. So hence the fact that the 147 games that I played, I, I, I think I kicked about 128 or 130 goals. So nearly averaging one goal a game, whereas Ruckman today very rarely kick a goal because they very rarely go down to the forward line. They basically ruck the whole day. And when they do have a spell, we used to have a spell on the forward pocket and or the back pocket. Yeah. Today they go off the ground. So they don't really get a chance much to kick a goal. Mind you, uh, big Maxi Gorn, um, yeah. you know, he's, he's starting to change that a little bit. And Bring it I back. always say when, I, when I, uh, I get invited to go to clubs and take them for ruck training over here, and, and I always encourage the ruckman to make sure he gets down. He's going to be so invaluable for that side if he makes sure he gets down and tries to kick one or two goals a game because that's going to put another string to his bow. You don't see that often enough anymore. Yeah. Yeah, such a good point. And, and like you mentioned, that they're, they're monsters, the height that they are. So the aerial game um, can be a huge threat. So if you can work on that forward craft, is, is, do you think that's just something that because the ruck craft takes so long to develop uh, that skill set that the forward line, it's hard to fit that in in time? Or is it more just it comes down to the individual to put in extras? Like you well, said, I think it just comes down to the individual, why they, the, the way they coach now. Like obviously uh, Melbourne has become a great side because – they do put Max Gorn in the forward line now, which um, at, at no other side really has the luxury to do that sort of thing. I think early in the year, the Bulldogs really had that game going when Stefan Martin, they got over from the Brisbane Lions, he yeah. was he took over the number one ruckman. And at that stage, uh, the other young fellow that yeah, ruckman, English. For, yep, for, yep. Uh, Tim English, he went down there and he was a real threat in the forward line early in the year. And then when Stefan Martin got hurt, I think it all they lost their sync with all that sort of stuff and it didn't quite work in the finals because they weren't used to doing it. But early in the year, it was working a treat for them. So I think it can be a great asset for any club to have two great ruckmen. Instead of taking one off the ground, put one in the forward line, especially with that height that they're at now. Who's going to be able to outmark Max Gorn? And he proved that in the preliminary final that, you know, he kicked five, four goals in 10 minutes or something, which just blew the game apart. And, and no ruckman's done that for a long time. Yeah, it's a good point. Like having the luxury of having two good ruckmen like Melbourne with the birth of uh, Jackson coming on the scene, who was instrumental in that third quarter of the grand final, allowed Gorn to, yeah, they've got that flexibility, don't they? Where most teams, you might only be lucky enough to have one good ruck. So they do their work in the ruck, which is pretty demanding, and then rest rather than playing forward line as well sort of burns them out. So you sort of do need two, don't you? To be able you to do. do. And, and, and even though Max didn't kick a goal, he, he threatened to kick a couple, but just to have him down there takes pressure on young Fitch and and, um, and and Tom McDonald and all these other forwards and, and Ben Brown. Well, how can the Bulldogs stop, you know, Ben Brown, Fitchy, uh, Tom McDonald, Max Gorn? You just can't do it. And that was the secret to Richmond's great success in their premiership years. They had Jack, um, Jack Rewalt, the Tasmanian boy. They had Lynch, the boy they got from the, from the Gold Coast. And, and then they, in the second half, they put Dustin Martin, a couple of those other guys down there. And the opposition just can't stop that uh, many great forward options down there because there's not enough great backmen to do that sort of thing. And uh, I think Melbourne now, uh, with that Jackson, the emergence of young Jackson, mm. he's 19 years of age. Like, oh, the potential that he's got, any wonder every club's going to be after him. But he's the one that got Melbourne back into the game with his great tap work. Obviously, he's a former basketballer. He just jumped straight over the top of them and, and spread the ball out to, you know, to their great-on ballers and the way that, because I went over to the game, it was just fantastic, and I was up quite high, which yeah. normally uh, I thought, gee, you know, up in the nose, nosebleed area. But the yeah. great thing about being up there is you can see everything unfolding actually before it unfolds, so it was fantastic to watch. It was poetry in motion, especially being a Melbourne supporter. And I say to people, I'm so proud because the, they're all saying about, you know, they've won a flag for 57 years and all this sort of stuff. Well, 57 years ago, 
as a 12-year-old, mate, I was at the MCG watching them win their last premiership and last week I watched them win their last premiership. So I've, I've seen both flags in, 50, in 57 years, which is just a dream come true for me. But the yeah. only thing that would have been better is if I, if I was out there myself and especially playing with your old man, mate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, what was the difference in, for those that weren't there, what was the difference? I know 12, being 12 would, would have been, it's a pretty different perspective to, compared to being an adult. But um, in terms of the atmosphere, did it, did it stand up with the MCG, do you think? Well, I don't think anything stands up with the MCG, Jack, I think. Um, and, and, and obviously with, the, with the, the lack of Melbourne and Footscray supporters mm. that could go to, um, to Perth, like the, the the atmosphere of the ground was was terrific. Uh, obviously, the the entertainment looked fantastic. Uh, the nighttime, the all that. What's great about going to the MCG? And this is not just me as a twelve year old because I, I can still remember walking into the MCG because it was my first ever VFL stroke AFL game that I'd ever seen. And I was a mad Melbourne supporter and used to send away for the tickets, get them in the mail. It was so exciting to get an envelope from the VFL with grand final tickets in it, which I can remember getting them. Went with mum and dad, uh, walked into the MCG. I can still remember walking in. And, and back in those days, of course, they had the under-19s played first, which Melbourne played Collingwood in. They had the reserves game after the under-19s, which Geelong played Richmond in. And then yeah. they had the Melbourne-Collingwood uh, grand final, which was the senior. So you went and watched the whole three games. And I remember walking in, and it must have been halfway through the thirds game and I heard this, I was walking towards this massive big building I'll never forget, I was walking through the grass area and, 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 and heading towards this massive big building as a 12 year old and I, and, and I heard this big roar and I said to um, my father, I said what's that roar, dad and he looked at me being an old footballer, he said this is the MCG son, he said and I said, well, I didn't know, you know, that this was the because being used to go and watch an play in the country, just yeah. with the cars around the ground and all that sort of stuff, I sort of half had it in my head that that's where we were going. Of course, so yeah. my yeah. first my first uh, recollection of the MCG was not knowing it was the MCG. But yeah. um, I say to people now, it's, it's, it's not just the ground, like the Wacker ground or the, the Optus Stadium or whatever, it's walking to the ground. Mm-hmm. Where you get the atmosphere, it's mm-hmm. smelling Melbourne and smelling Grand Final Day on the MCG, and it's seeing other players and people that you know and don't know, and it's just the familiarity of walking over that footbridge coming from the from the city, which is part of the atmosphere of Grand Final Day, and and also when the side that is going to win when they're supporters and normally there's 50,000 of them, they're all chanting and all that. That's what we missed out on in Western Australia. Yeah. We missed out on the fact that there was probably only, you know, 15,000 Melbourne supporters and the same with Footscray or Western Bulldog supporters. And then there was a whole lot of West Australians there that sort of half barrack for one side or the other. So you didn't get that full-on chant that you... I remember when Collingwood won it, when Richmond won it, and I know they were the bigger clubs, um, but the chant that went around the MCG when they knew they had the game in the bag was just deafening and it just brought, made the hair stand up on the back of your shoulders. And I'm sure that Melbourne, and I know that we've been down a long time, but we've got so many supporters that would have filled the MCG and, and the atmosphere would have been so much better Mind you, when you go to win a flag, mate, you'd win it in Nanagoon if that's where you had to play. Of course, of course. And who did you go for? Because you had obviously had a connection with both clubs. Oh, look, I, look. As as a as a young kid, I was a mad Melbourne supporter. Hence the fact okay, that yeah. I went to the nineteen sixty four grand final. A mad Melbourne supporter. Uh, the reason I went to Footscray, as it was known then, was because back in the sixties and seventies, it was all in zoning. So wherever you lived. And where I lived in Langatha and beyond that area in Manion Dumbok United, it was all in Footscray zoning. Next to that over at Druin and Warrigal and those areas, which is not far from Langatha, is where the Ablets come from and Barry Round and, and those sort of guys, they got drafted to Hawthorne. Uh, well, well, some did. It was a bit of a mixed match there. But 
Um, because um, I was in Footscray zoning, that's why I went to Footscray for three years. And how I got to Melbourne was um, I played a, 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 a reserves final at mm. the MCG uh, in 1973, and it was the first semi-final. And it was the days, I think, of the old, it was just the top four in those days, the top four or the top five. It wasn't the eight like it is today. And we played Carlton at the MCG. And back in those times, there was only, there was a, a, one final was one Saturday, the next final was the next Saturday, the next final was the next Saturday, and then the grand final was the following Saturday. So you only had one game on each Saturday for four weeks running. That's how the final setup was then. Yeah. And we played this game against Footscray, uh, against Carlton playing for Footscray. And by three-quarter time, there was 95,000 people at the, at the MCG. And it was just absolutely, it was one of my highlights of playing a game. And I actually got best on the ground. I remember taking this specky on the, on the wing and all that sort of stuff. And on the Monday morning, the Melbourne Footy Club rang me up after watching me play on the Saturday and asked me, did I want to be their number one ruckman the following year? So that's... How I got to Melbourne from Footscray was playing a standout game in the reserves semi-final uh, in 1973. Fantastic. It just so happened to be the team you supported. So and it was the team I supported, yes. And what about some strong influences and, I guess, mentors um, in, your, in your career early days? Uh, who were some strong people that influenced your career? Oh, well, obviously, you know, my junior coaches, uh, Adeline Gather and, uh, and, and Manion Dumbalk United, but... My father, my father was a great, uh, Les Baker was his name. He was a great old country footballer. And I just grew up, you know, following wherever he went. And he coached quite a few. He was a big, strong, six-foot-one ruckman. And uh, he, he captain coached a lot of teams back in those days uh, when I was growing up. And I just remember going to the footy with him every Saturday and I'd either have the, the, the club that he was coaching with all their stuff on and full footy boots and kit and caboodle and the whole stuff, or my Melbourne stuff. That's what I used to wear to the footy. And, and back, back then, um, you'd go to the footy and, and, and every other kid would be there as well. And they'd all have their footy and full decked out in footy gear and all that sort of stuff. The memories from, from, from my youth as a footballer was every kid loved footy. And you'd go to the game and at quarter time, half time, after the game, before the game, you just there'd be there'd be footies flying everywhere. You know, you really had to worry where your footy ended up going. But yeah. uh, my father was probably and 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 also, like I said earlier, he did captain coach Dumbork Football Club before Mean and Dumbork merged. But yeah. one of the years that I played, well, the year that I played senior football at Mean and Dumbork United um, in 1970 or whatever year I think it was 1970, my father actually coached the firsts, the seconds, and the thirds that year. So he was a great influence on my career. And I'll tell you what else he did. At the end of the year, after coaching the thirds, the seconds, and the seniors in the 1970 year, they give him, uh, they must have thought he was pretty good in it because they give him a double bed for, for, that was his payment, a double bed for coaching the three sides for that whole year. Yeah, that's impressive. I've never yeah. heard of that before, coaching all no. three teams. That's a big day on game day. It's a big day. <laughs> Yeah. Very impressive. And what about when you're in the system? Were there any players or anyone that sort of uh, took you under their arm early days at Footscray or, or when you joined, when you were traded to Melbourne? Well, there was. Well, Footscray was, uh, you know, it, it was sort of over in a flash, really. I was there for, uh, for, for the three years. I played, uh, obviously, the first year I played um, uh, uh, reserves. Uh, Ted Whitten was my first coach, the great EJ Ted Whitten. And ended up being a great uh, mentor of mine and a great friend of mine as well. And unfortunately, passed away way too early. Uh, Bobby Rose took over from him, the great Collingwood man. He was. Uh, you take things out of all those sort of uh, people. And and when I went to uh, when I went to Melbourne, uh, Bobby Skilton was. Uh, he was uh, my first coach at Melbourne, and I never forget. He got me in the room before the uh, when when they basically signed me up. Um, and in those days, you, you just uh, you would play for nothing, so you obviously signed up for nothing. Um, and he said to me, he said, uh, "Ball, he said, um, you've got to help us win a premiership. This is in nineteen preseason, nineteen seventy four. He said because we haven't won a premiership for ten years, yeah. <laughs> ten years." And I thought, you know, and, and I'm telling, I tell people this story because fifty seven years later, we still haven't won a premiership. But they, Melbourne, thought it was a long time. 
from 64 to 74 that they hadn't won a flag. They thought it was a hell of a long time back in yeah. those times. That's Little did we know that it was going to be another 47 years before they uh, saluted. But I think the Demons could probably uh, add to that trophy cabinet in the next couple of years. Um, uh, I think they're good enough anyway. But one player that really um, helped me was a guy called Greg Wells, who yep. was a great uh, Melbourne footballer, ended up leaving, uh, I think, in about 1980 or 81 and went to Carlton and played in their 81 or 82 premiership. He was a great player at Melbourne, Greg Wells. And I remember when I went there, I pelled up with him somehow and uh, where I was living, he used to come around to my house at 5.30 every morning, drag me out of bed, and we used to run around the blocks of, because we lived in Armidale or Malvern or somewhere around there, and we used to go running every morning. So I, 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 I credit Greg Wells with, with motivating me to uh, be a little bit better than what I maybe could have been. Yeah, fantastic. It's important to have those influences and mentors. And what about on the flip side, when, when you were uh, in the leadership group at Melbourne, um, how did you go about leading players? What was sort of your leadership style? Well, um, leadership probably back then is probably a bit different to now. They, you know, they, they, they choose three captains and five captains. I was actually um, um, chosen as vice captain uh, of Melbourne in 1981. Robbie Flower, the great Robbie Flower, was, uh, he was the captain. I was named as a vice captain and, uh, and, and I got the shock of my life because it was Ron Barassi's first year as, uh, to come over from where he'd come from as, uh, as the coach of Melbourne Football Club. And we thought that, you know, when Barass came over, everyone thought we were going to win the premiership. And, and by the way, um, uh, as a player, every mm. year, didn't matter where you finished the year before, you always thought you had the ability within that team to win the flag the next year. And, and, and everyone sort of made a pact every year that, you know, watching the grand final and watching how, how uh, happy and how lucky or whatever it is that the players were that played in the premiership, yeah, were, we were going to do it the next year, and that's just one thing that we thought. When I was uh, named vice-captain of the club from Barassi in his first year, I, I did get a, a hell of a shock because um, um, I, I never thought that I would, you know, be elevated to that sort of area as the second-best player or the second-best person in the club to lead the club. But I tried to lead by example on the training track. You just all of a sudden, I don't know, puts a bit of a spring in your step that you you're up your ante a little bit because you are in the leadership group and you've got to make an example for all those other players. But, you know, still looking back on my career, I, I think um, I, I, I heard a great um, thing about Christian Petraka, who um, I've got to know a little bit uh, over the last couple of years. He's uh, one of the most um, um, likeable people that I've met in, in current day sport. He's just an absolute beauty and, and his parents are fantastic. He comes from great stock and all that sort of stuff. But um, I read something last week that, um, that the, the fitness guy at Melbourne said that Christian Petrack has been a re really good player for five or six years. But th the start of this year, what he wanted to do was to be best on the ground, not only every Saturday that he played, but every time he took to the training track. Yeah and trained, he wanted to be best on the ground. He made sure he was the best performed person, whether it be on the training track, in the wherever he was within that Melbourne Football Club. And, and when you think about that, you think that's the improvement that for, for the standard that he had as a, good as, a, as a pretty good footballer, you wouldn't think that some kid could improve that much. But he's taken on that mindset, that attitude, that he wanted to be the best every time he grabbed a football and have a look at the year that he had and also capped it off with a, a Norm Smith medal, which he yeah. did things that even he probably didn't think he could do. So it just goes to show you, and I look back on my career and I think I wish I had taken that thing on back in, in, in my day because I probably thought I was, you know, training and playing as well as I probably could, but, I, you know, I, I've got me doubts whether I was 100%. Now... I am in my own business. I've been in my own business for 35 years. I run restaurants, which is a pretty full-on, um, uh, you know, to take yeah. on. It's pretty, yeah. pretty full-on. And I just think if I had to put the time and effort and hard work that I put into running my successful restaurants into my football 40 years ago, I may have won two or three Brownlow medals, Jack. Yeah, <laughs> I have no doubt, mate. Yeah. The, number, the number one. Um, yeah. So you think that so you 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 uh, 
you're 100% in focusing on your performance on game day, but taking that to the training track, uh, you know, the intensity was a little bit off. And if you looked at well, your time well, again, well, you know, Sorry, mate. So I, I look back and it probably wasn't even game day. It possibly was as well. I don't know whether... I don't, I don't know whether sometimes some players are just happy to be thinking, you know, they're playing AFL, VFL footy, whatever it is. But I, I'm pretty sure that I could have, well, I hope I could have played a bit better than what I did or, or performed a bit better or been a bit more professional. Mind you, nowadays they are professional. So back in, back in our day, we, we, we were so, sort of semi-professional. We used to get paid a little bit of money. Um, yeah, but, but you had to work much. as well. Not yeah. much, but we all had jobs as well. I worked as a brickies labourer for a long time and I used to, you know, I'd be laying bricks till uh, four o'clock and then I'd jump in my car and go to training and, and, yeah. and train for two hours. And, and, and so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't your 100% priority, even though uh, it, it could have been or should have been, but your job was still pretty important as well because everyone had families and kids and houses to pay off if you could afford to buy one and all those sort of things. Whereas now they just concentrate on, you know, and they've got coaches like yourself, Jack, you know, to, to, to professionally tell people what they're doing wrong. And like, you know, I played my whole VFL career without having really a, a running coach or a weights coach or we didn't even have weights in the rooms back in those days. We didn't have a gym. I think the gym only started my last year. I was at Melbourne that the gym started and then, when I left Melbourne, I went up to Sydney where we were tra- training in a tin shed out the back of the SCG on some old ground that was, you know, just there with, with a fence around, a little fence around it. So the professionalism yeah, wasn't right. there then. And, and obviously if the professionalism is not in all, uh, all the facilities and that, the professionalism doesn't get into your head as much as what it does today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well put, well put. And it's... Uh... It's a good balance between, you know, you, you do have to take it upon yourself, but if you're not in the environment and you've got other distractions in life, like you said, like um, bricklaying and that, and that has physical demands, but also the uh, mental energy that that takes as well. Because if you lose that job, um, like you said, your family loses out. So you've got distractions from your footy. Um, so the importance of, of a high-performance environment and having access to all these things and committing 100% to it all your time to it would, would make a big difference. So it is a different, different time. Um, like you said, there's been a lot of changes in, in the game. Hey guys, CJ here. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with Jack for the last two years preparing for last year's NAB AFL Draft Combine and then this year's NAB AFL Draft Combine. Um, he's been absolutely amazing helping me zone in on specific areas of what I wanted to work on, which is my endurance of the 2K time trial and um, the 20 metre sprint. Trying to crack that under three seconds has been a massive goal for me this year. And I feel like that the work that I put in with Jack, he's just helped me skyrocket um, for my personal goals, which has been absolutely amazing for me. But it's not only it's not only what he's done on field for me, it's what he's done off field for me. He's been able to help me be persistent with the lockdowns that we've had stay motivated, prepare for massive events, especially the combine this year, which was done over Strava, unfortunately, that we couldn't get out to the Holden Centre and compete um, against the other the other prospects. But also the massive one is just recovering. He's been able to give me a massive, massive influences on how to recover properly. Obviously, fueling for your next sessions massively for me as well. And the advice that he's given me so far has just been second to none. It's been really appreciative what he's done. Um, I've really enjoyed working with Jack. I feel like we've become a bit of a, we've made a bit of a friendship, which is always, it makes it easier when you're training, when you've got basically a mate that's telling you what to do. It makes it a whole lot easier than a, than a random coach that you've never really met before. So I feel like Jack's just helped me, helped me prepare for the combine as, as, as best as I could. And yeah, I can't appreciate the stuff that he's done for me. And yeah, he's made me really tick some boxes in, in my own my own goods and hopefully recruiters and are happy with my improvement. And yeah, it's a massive shout out and thanks to Jack. You mentioned uh, your progressions and the, and the influences you had early on and then your leadership style. What about your highlights in your career? What are some moments that pop up that you get excited about when you think back? Or you, or you talk about other players that you played with. Yeah, well, um, I played with some, um, I played with some pretty uh, unbelievable players. Um, you know, Robbie Flower was uh, Robbie Flower and Greg Wells were t- the two better players that I, I, I played with. There's a guy called Gary Hardiman that people don't give him credit for. Was a champion player at the Melbourne Footy Club. But the characters that I played with at Melbourne, 
Uh, Phil Carr, fabulous Phil Carman, we all remember him. He was such a brilliant player, but uh, he, he's a guy that probably never got the best out of himself as far as, I, I don't know, his mindset or whatever. Mark Jacko Jackson, remember old Jacko? He was. Uh, he sang. He sang a song about being an individual, and that that's what he was. But you know what a what a forward he uh, he he played in a time that uh, he used to push every player out and kick a lot of goals. I think he averages uh, you know just on four goals a game in his eighty or ninety game career. So he, he was a pretty um, a pretty good full forward. Uh, probably underestimated. Crackers Keen and a few of those sort of blokes. Brent Croswell, another guy that um, that came over from uh, North Melbourne and come. We play with some great characters there at Melbourne. Unfortunately, they all come at different times and we just couldn't quite put it all together. We nearly made the finals once or twice while I was at Melbourne and never quite got there. But over the period, we have some, had some great players that played at Melbourne. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the latter-day players like, um, you know, guys like Peter Giles become a great friend of mine, was a... Was a He's, he's probably one of your old man's uh, old uh, Sandringham uh, mates and, and boys that played at Sandringham Footy Club. But they come from everywhere. When I first started every, at Footscray, they all come from Footscray. Everyone come from Footscray, Latrobe Valley, where I come from. Now the players just come from everywhere. It's a different scenario now. And, and what about challenges? What were some of your biggest challenges in, during your career? And what did you, how did you grow from them? What, what did you learn? Well, the challenge was, uh, you know, every week to try and get a game, you know. That was our, our biggest challenge was to, to perform uh, well enough each week that you'd get a game. And then if you did get dropped, which every now and again you get dropped and go back to the seconds, um, you would, uh, the challenge was to, to get best on the ground in the seconds because the only way you could get, get back in in those days was hope that the bloke that took your spot never got a kick and you got best on the ground. So most times I got dropped which was a few times, you get dropped to the seconds, you would make sure you got BOG in the twos and then hopefully the following week you'd get back. But there was that challenge at all, always to make the finals. That was the ultimate. Unfortunately, uh, we never, ever did it. You know, I, three years at the Bulldogs, never played finals. Um, the ironic thing is that the year after I left the Bulldogs, I made the finals. I had nine years at Melbourne, never made finals. A couple of years later, they made the finals. And then I went up to the Swans and had two years up there, uh, obviously never made finals. Um, and a few years later, they become a power as well. But one thing I did, Jack, I hung in and hung in and hung in and got to 41 years of age down here in Tassie and not only played in my first ever senior premiership, but I got best on the ground as well. You had your day in the sun. There you go, at 41. day in the sun, mate. And just That's to incredible. go one better... The fo- I loved it that much that the following year I captain coached to do another flag. So my last two years when I was 41 and 42 down here in Tassie were, were my only two senior premierships. So anyone out there that hasn't played in a flag, yeah. just hang in and hang in because I did it at 41 and 42, mate. It took me 35 years to do it, but I finally did it. Yeah, that's incredible. That's a, a great story. There you go. Persistence pays, hey? Persistence pays off, mate. And uh, we'll We'll talk about the transition from your from your footy. How did you get into the into the restaurant business? Was that a, something you started looking at while you were playing? You mentioned you were doing bricklaying. When did you make that transition into looking into running restaurants? Well, in 1981, when Ron Barassi um, came over as as coach of Melbourne, him and um, and his offsider that he coached the two premierships, a guy called Adrian Gags Gallagher who um, I also played with at Footscray uh, back in 1973 um, before I, I left and went to Melbourne. They purchased the Mountain View Hotel in Richmond, which is only a couple hundred metres from, from the MCG. They actually, because Gags was an old publican, uh, and him and Barassi actually bought the pub and they asked me would I um, be the bar manager there for that year. So I, I took the job on and, and, and I got... I got a bit of a taste of the hospitality industry by being the bar manager, using what I thought was maybe a bit of personality, uh, coupled with the fact that I was an VFL, AFL footballer that people sort of half knew. So I, I used that to my advantage. And then a couple of years later, when Ron Barassi gave me the flick and I went to Sydney, I was past my prime. Then I was about 31 when I went up to Sydney. I knew I was, I had to look for something other than football. And it was either going to coaching, which I did for two years. I went and coached uh, uh, Morty Alec, captain coach Morty Alec for one year, 
in the old VFA second division. And then uh, because they didn't um, have a, a great lot of success, I got offered to go to Moorabbin, which was in the same, um, same league. So the following year, I went to Moorabbin, captain coached them for one year. And at the end of that year, I thought, well, I've either got to pursue uh, coaching or get out of it and get into something else. And I got a phone call from an old mate of mine in Tasmania to see if he wanted to go in, if I wanted to go in with him in a hotel in, in mm. Hobart, Tasmania. So I come down here, had a look around for five minutes, decided that I'd do it. That was 1986. It's now 2021 and I'm still here. So what I did was I had hotels or pubs or whatever you want to call them. For yeah, 15 yeah. years, I had hotels and pubs. And then after 15 years, I had this hotel that I leased out to someone that bought the business that I kept the building. And within, uh, it was a very successful hotel. And within six months, he'd taken it down the gurgler and, and he went broke. So I had to come back in. At that stage, I was living in Melbourne just for 12 months to have a bit of a spell. And in the mid-90s, pubs started to change and go into cafe bar type hotels. And there was a pub that I used to go to in Richmond. Uh, it was the Town Hall Hotel that ended up becoming Spargo's that become yeah. where everyone wanted to go and they tiled the floor and tiled the walls and put a wood-fired pizza oven in. And it was still a pub, but it was sort of a restaurant pub as well. So I come back after uh, my pub had been closed for a while and turned it into something like I'd been going to that was becoming the new trend mm. of, of hotels. So, you know, but we're going to have a meal, a nice glass of wine, all that sort of stuff in a nice atmosphere. So I turned my pub into that type of atmosphere which got me going into restaurants. And, and now I've got, uh, as, you, as you mentioned earlier, I've got two restaurants that I run, plus I've got another two that I lease out. Uh, and, um, and like I said earlier, I work so hard that I wish I'd have worked this hard when I was playing football because I would have been an absolute superstar if I had to put the effort that, I've, that you've got to put in when yeah. it's your own business compared to, you know, obviously back in the day you'd just sort of go with the flow a little bit. But now, um, yeah, and now in Hobart, we're the only world in Tasmania. We're one of the only couple of states that are, hasn't been affected by, um, by COVID mm. as much, still a little bit, because we can't have the tourists in now from Melbourne and Sydney and, and obviously Canberra and all that sort of stuff. But Hobart is becoming a place that uh, is, is at the moment very safe um, and business as usual. So uh, I really feel for the, all these uh, hospitality people in Melbourne and Sydney and it just breaks my heart to see Chapel Street and Ligon Street and all these little lanes in Melbourne that I used to, one of the reasons you'd go over there every month is to stay in a hotel and go up those little lanes and have breakfast and, and, and go to my old, you know, go to all my old favourite restaurants to see them all close down. It just breaks your heart. But on the other hand, we're so happy that we're here in Tassie still doing what we do best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, times are definitely tough in the hospitality industries in, in Melbourne yeah. for sure, um, the heart of, of coffee, but no doubt uh, the demand for like, sitting down and having breakfast will be pretty high when, when we do open up. And hope the business oh, I bet you're looking happen. forward to it, Jack. Yeah, absolutely. What's your favourite breakfast, Mark? Oh, you can't go mate, being a Sorry, mate, being a fitness guru, what, is your, what, what do fitness gurus have for breakfast? I'm an egg, eggs Benedict and a homemade hash brown man myself, but uh, what is the fitness guru? Yeah. No, if you train hard, you can have your hash browns and your Benedict, I reckon. A little and bit of I say to everyone, you train and you can eat whatever you like. And just on training, Jack, I know you're a fitness guru, but uh, about my two daughters who uh, ride into training, they train all the time. Um, yeah. Lucy, who, who runs one of my restaurants, and Paris, who um, she's worked a bit in hospitality, but she's uh, – She's a psycho trained psychologist, and they train all the time. And about four or five years ago, they said, they said, Dad, you've got to come along to this gym. You, you haven't done much for a while. So for the last five years, um, I've been going to the gym six days a week, uh, four or five years, hardly missed a, missed a day. I look forward to getting up at 5.30 every morning. I'm at the gym at 10 to 6 every morning. And uh, I, it's, it's just become embedded in me that this is what I do now every day. So I'm glad that I'm talking to a fitness guru, mate, because the fitness guru I'm talking to is also talking to a fitness guru. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a fitness guru, but... <laughs> 
that's inspiring, mate, that you can you can run, you know, lease out two restaurants. You basically own four restaurants, lease two and, and manage the operations of two and you still find the time to, to train uh, consistently and very frequently as well, mate. That's, that's impressive. And well, the good thing about it is, Jack, we do lunch and dinner in both restaurants, but not breakfast. So nah, smart. the early mornings are the smart mornings. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got to make it work for you, don't you? You do, mate. And and we'll go into the personal side of the uh, podcast. These aren't necessarily football or business relevant, but just a little bit to, to get to know you for the listeners listening to the either this live chat or, or the podcast. So. The first one, which movie or TV series has uh, impacted you the most, and why? Well, mate, when I was a, when I was living in Melbourne, my like I love Australian, I love Australian television, yep. love Australian television. And back in back in my early days, I used to be absolutely in love with Cop Shop. Yeah, yeah, something you probably wouldn't even have heard of. And then along came Skyways, and before that was Homicide, the old detective shows and all that. That's what I was absolutely uh, right into. Um, now, I, I just watched a, a, a thing on uh, Netflix and only finished last week, and I was so disappointed it finished a, a, a show went, uh, I think there were three series of about eight 40-minute goes of each series called Tangle. Now, Tangle. I don't know if you know of Tangle. But I really, it's an Australian show. And, and uh, when, uh, when the Underbelly um, yeah, uh, yeah, series yeah. was on, like that was, you just could not watch that every night. Yeah. It was, you were waiting there with a with bated breath for it to start. And, and the girl that played Roberta Williams, who, mind you, I got to know a little bit, Roberta, um, uh, on a, well, I did get to know her a bit. But the girl that played her, Cat Stewart, yeah. I thought was fantastic playing Roberta. She's actually plays a, a, a role in this um, series called Tangle. So I'm still into my Australian uh, series, but it all started back in the day with Cop Shop. Now, there was a young fellow called Andrew McKay who played in Skyways. He was a, an actor back in the, in the 70s or 80s who also had a run at Melbourne, played a couple of years in the second. So just the fact that I love Skyways and I'm playing football with one of the actors was pretty good. And there was another guy called Greg Ross, who's a veteran actor, who's acted and played in a lot of show, Australian uh, dramas. He was actually one of the main guys in Cop Shop, so I had a bit of an affiliation with both those shows as well. But um, uh, Australian uh, TV shows, Brandy. Australian movies, and also yeah. I love Australian crime, true crime, Australian books. I can sit down and read them forever and a day. Yeah. There you go. So if you weren't a uh, professional footballer, bricklayer, running restaurants, maybe a, a copper or a forensic detective or something could have been. Well, I don't know about being one of them, but I certainly love reading about them, mate. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, every day we open the papers up and there's more and more to read about um, about the gangsters and stuff. It's just fantastic. Yeah. And uh, what about favourite inspirational quote or life motto? Uh, quite a life motto. Well, a, 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 an oldie but a goodie. Um, has always been the, the the harder you work, the luckier you get, mate. Uh, yeah. There's no secret to uh, there's no secret to success, uh, and that's hard work. And and I've certainly uh, showed that that's in my um, in my in my working life, um, especially the last thirty five years. Um, you know, you, you work hard, and things can happen. If you work hard and they don't happen, well, at least you can sit back and say, well, at least. I put it all in and I tried my hardest, you know, but there's nothing worse than people going back and they I've, – I've seen people that have bought pubs and sat on the other side and drank and then complained about going broke. Well, that's yeah. not the way to do it. Nah. And what about in your work life? What, what, what are your pet peeves? What, make, what fires you up? What makes you angry? Oh, right now is uh, our, our, biggest, our biggest thing now in our industry is, um, is getting the right amount of staff that really want to – really want to work uh, in this industry uh, and certainly uh, today because all our borders are shut and everything we've got we've always relied on the backpackers from overseas to come in and we've always got three or four or five of the terrific uh, male and female backpackers that just want to work in this mm. industry and they want to work for 12 months and then they'll move on and another half a dozen will come in well unfortunately with the uh, pandemic well they're not coming in so we're really 
shortage, our shortage of staff is the biggest peeve that we've got at the moment. Yeah. And favourite way to spend your day off? Do you have a day off? Uh, well, when, uh, yeah, well, I, like, you, you do have a day off occasionally, but uh, I've got, um, I, 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 I was lucky enough about 35 years ago to buy a little uh, beach house when I first come to Tassie uh, at a little place called Opossum Bay. Now, if anyone wants to Google Opossum Bay, you'll see how absolutely beautiful Opossum Bay is. I've got a little place that sits right on the water. It's about 35 minutes out of Hobart, right on the water. It's the sunniest place in the world, Opossum Bay, and, and people from, uh, from anywhere but Tassie would say, how can Tasmania be the sunniest place in the world? Well, I'm telling you it is. Uh, so my, my great uh, joy I get about having a day off is going, taking the 35 minutes to drive down to Opossum Bay with my true crime Australian books, sitting on my deck, reading, having a drink occasionally, having as much food as I want and swimming out the front, and that is my best day, mate. Yeah, you can picture it. It's uh, picturesque. What about um, this is a COVID-free world, favourite holiday destination and why? Well, the, the, the place I've been the most in my life, uh, other than Opossum Bay, is uh, Bali. Um, I've probably been to Bali about 30 times over, uh, you know, since 1985 or something. Uh, I really miss going to Bali. I miss the people of Bali. I miss the, 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 um, the beauty of Bali. I miss the, the, the food, the, the, the service, those beautiful Balinese people. So that's what I'm hanging out. As soon as everything um, opens up again, hopefully, which won't be too long, mate, I'm on the mm. next plane to Bali. Mm. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. But um, lucky enough to go to Bali a fair few times and definitely missing it. That's the one place that we're yeah, keen on the sunshine, the beautiful people, like you said. Uh, just such a great vibe, isn't it? So easy to relax in Bali. And there's a uh, there's uh, the greatest uh, one of the greatest coffee places that I've ever been to in my life is a, is a is a place called Revolver, which is in uh, which oh, yeah. is in Bali. And I'm sure if you've been to Bali, you would have been there and the atmosphere and the coffee and all that is just like, it's the best. And, and other than missing Bali, I'm actually missing Revolver as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, beautiful food, like you said. Uh, and you get a little bit of, of uh, all different cultures over there as well, which is awesome in terms of your food. But we'll, we'll start to wrap it up, mate. I know it's been a, uh, it's been a great podcast for those tuned in live. If you've, if you've caught us late, make sure to um, watch from the very beginning. Uh, we've talked about Gary's footy journey, his work life, career, post footy, um, and how he goes about his life and, and his mindset to to work hard and and make and you know create luck through hard work. So it's been a fantastic episode, mate. Thanks for for jumping on. What what are you excited about for what 2021 has left? What what are, what's on the horizon for you? Well, 2021 has left. Um, I'm uh, my next birthday. I'll be 69 years of age. Um, I'm, I'm in organisation at the moment with my beautiful daughter Lucy, who runs um, who runs our restaurant out in a, a little trendy suburb called Moona, and that restaurant's called St Alby. She does a fantastic job out there, and I'm and and she's told me that what I've got to do, Dad, you've got to slow down, and I want to take over your restaurant at Rockwall. You can just sit on the outskirts and play the grandfather. So we're working on that now for her to just tie um, to slow me down a little bit. I don't know how she's going to go about doing it. Maybe she'll have to chain me to my chair down at Opossum Bay. But that's one thing I'm uh, really looking forward to. And the, and the main thing I'm looking forward to is when that happens, she's just given me a, a beautiful little grandson called Huxley. He's two years old now. Uh, so, I, you know, one of my great uh, thrills in the future is to uh, get him used to a possum bay like I am and spend a lot of time with my grandson down there, mate. How good. Fantastic. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's exciting for your family uh, and Fantastic. for yourself, mate, as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gary. It's been a great chat. Uh, what about, we'll, we'll wrap it up with uh, you've mentioned, um, I think, throughout the podcast, but maybe just to make it clear, for those um, that are booking in a trip to Tassie, hopefully very soon, uh, either at the end of the year or, or early 2022. Where, where are your two restaurants? Where can they catch up? Well, we're in uh, the, the, the where I am is in uh, Salamanca Place, uh, those yep. beautiful old sandstone, sandstone buildings, just where the market is, uh, the big market, Salamanca Market. Every week we've got one of those old sandstone buildings there. The restaurant's called Rockwall Bar and Grill. So uh, 
we basically specialise in all fresh Tasmanian uh, food, uh, seafood, uh, the beef, uh, the chicken, the duck, it's all. And the other restaurant is called St Albi. It's in a, a, a trendy suburb called Myrna, which is a bit like from, from Melbourne to Brunswick, yeah. um, only five minutes out of town. Um, and they, the, the, what, the, what uh, the daughter and I have done out there is we, we've turned a, a big old warehouse into a, uh, into a 200-seat restaurant, which serves a very similar cuisine to what we serve in town, uh, goes gangbusters out there. So they're the two restaurants. Everyone wants to come. Just ask for Lucy or the big bull, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Garrett. Thanks for, uh, for jumping on. Really appreciate it. Jack, it's great to to see you, mate. I've heard so much about you. Your old man's a great friend of mine. He was a great ruckman and for a brief time was a great restaurateur himself, mate. Yeah, he's done well to to sell it and um, he can start to kick up the feet a little bit. You guys might um, enjoy a Opossum Bay uh, session soon. Without a doubt, mate. Good to see you, Jack. Good to see you, Gary. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian at the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane and I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, sure yeah, game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an S&C coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, 
you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.